0: From people.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing.
1: You don't wanna have to go out and convince customers first that they have a problem and then that you have the best solution to that problem. You wanna go into a market where the problem is well understood and many customers are dissatisfied with the way that the incumbents are solving the problem.
0: Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today I'm joined by Carlos De La Torre, Chief Revenue Officer at TripActions. If there's anyone who's cracked the code on the playbooks that drive high growth companies, it's Carlos. He's developed formulas for spotting winning companies and building winning sales teams. What's most impressive about this formula is that it works across industries and in companies of all sizes. Over his career, Carlos has built an impressive track record at companies in the CAD, the PLM, the IT service management, the database, and the travel industries. On today's show, he'll lay out the plays that have made him successful. Along the way, he'll share the experiences that led to the insights behind those motions. Let's dive into the conversation. Carlos, welcome to the podcast. Justin, thanks for having me. Well, listen. We've got a lot of great material to dive into. I thought, though, we'd start off with what I what I felt was a very poignant toast that your grandfather of all people likes to put out there at the Christmas meal. Can you tell us a little bit about that toast, and then more broadly, a little bit about your grandfather?
1: Oh, sure. He's passed now, but he was a he was a strong influence in my life. He and my parents, uh, all my grandparents and my parents, emigrated from Cuba to Miami. Every year at Christmas, the toast was the same. It was like next year in Cuba or next year in Havana. It created sort of an interesting backdrop for, I guess, my upbringing, which was being the, the son and grandson of immigrants who had to sacrifice a lot to, to make things work in a, in a new land with a new language and were, especially my grandparents, they, they had a strong longing you know, for what they'd left behind. So
0: you were a kid growing up in Miami in the '80s, one of my favorite decades. That's the decade that I uh, was a teenager as well. What was it like being in Miami back in the day?
1: Miami was an interesting place. If you watched like ESPN uh, 30 for 30 on the University of Miami in those days, there was definitely a roughness to it. The cocaine industry. I'd say it was a big deal. The cocaine wars, uh cocaine industry really thrived, I guess, in the 70s and early 80s and and the war on drugs really, you know, happened in the 80s. So that element was present. It was a city that had had its heyday in the 50s but then had sort of fallen into disrepair, let's say, during the 60s and 70s and then in the beginning of the 80s you had the the Mariel boatlift which is you know, essentially where the Cuban government emptied out their prisons and their insane asylum and sent those people mostly to Miami along with the family members of Cuban Americans that wanted to get them out. And so Miami was, uh, it was hot at the time, so to speak.
0: So there was a collision of a lot of cultures, a lot of different dynamics, political, social, I got to imagine that as a kid, you developed a a certain level of awareness and savviness that you might not have developed had you grown up in other places.
1: Probably so. The idea of a a fight breaking out on the street or at a red light was pretty common. So with this as the
0: backdrop, I I find it fascinating that one of your passions early on was horses, of all things. How did you get into horses and, and what role did they play in your
1: life? My dad had a lot of hobbies. And, uh, he seemed to sort of go from hobby to hobby. And one of his hobbies was, uh, he, he got a horse and I, uh, really, uh, fell in love with horses. Finally convinced him to, to get me a horse and, you know, was able to do some work on the side to, to help pay for the horse and, and riding lessons and whatnot. Just spent as much time as I could, uh, with horses and at the barn and eventually got into, uh, you know, got into competing and, and even giving riding lessons.
0: As you think about those experiences that you had with horses, this might be kind of a strange question, but what did those horses teach you?
1: Oh, wow. That's that's an interesting question. A horse really wants to please its rider. That's probably its ultimate objective, but it's plagued with fear. And so to train a horse, you really have to learn to help the horse calm down and let the fear sort of subside so that the natural instinct to want to please can can manifest. And I think people are the same. I think people are... Innately good. They want to do the right thing. And when they don't, it's usually because something is, something is messing with them in some way, whether it's, you know, fear or greed or insecurity or uncertainty or something else. And so I think it's a lesson that transcends human animal relationship into human human relationships.
0: Do you ever find yourself drawing upon those lessons as a sales leader, trying to bring out the best in your sales team?
1: 100%. 100%. In fact, an analogy that I think, you know, plays out, you know, w- one of the things we talk about in, in sales leadership is how important it is to recruit individuals who have the right intangibles, the right innate characteristics. Some of the competitions that you have with horses, you know, those innate characteristics in the horse really carry the horse. One is cutting. If you know anything about cutting, you know, you've got a rider on the horse and the rider's job is to guide the horse into a a herd of, of, of of cattle of steers and separate out the one steer and then that one steer really wants to get back to the safety of the herd well what the rider's real responsibility is uh, is to is to guide the horse separate out that one steer and once that one steer it has been separated and the horse knows which is which is the steer to focus on Really, that from that point on, the rider just holds on and, and instincts kick in. It becomes a game for the horse where the horse tries to cut. That's the reason they call it cutting. Cut off the, the steer and keep the steer separate from the group. It's a really beautiful thing to watch. And uh, it's an example of where when you have the right sort of DNA, you can sort of get out of, get out of the individual's way and let them do their thing. They're probably going to do it really well.
0: All right. I'm glad you brought up DNA. A lot of times people talk about sales DNA. You can't teach a person to sell. It's in them and you bring it out. I think it's safe to say you had sales in your DNA from an early age. Tell us a little bit about some of your earliest sales jobs.
1: Okay, we'll come back to the DNA thing. I've got mixed opinions there on on sales DNA. But um, okay. some of my early sales jobs, uh, let's see. I sold suits at the mall at uh, Sting Male Fashions. So, so going back to Miami, the store was named after the Sting, which was a, I don't know, it was a movie. I, I think it was a I think it was a gangster movie. Yeah, Paul sure. Paul Newman. Yeah, Paul Newman. yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's Robert so that's, Redford. So that's one. I sold copiers. My first job was uh, was at an ice cream pa- uh, ice cream parlor. I got fired from that one for being uh, too generous with the toppings. After multiple <laughs> warnings, uh, Maria, from Maria's Ice Cream Palace, after multiple warnings, my cousin Felix came in. I set him up, and uh, and that was my last day on the job.
0: It's always the toppings that kill you.
1: The <laughs> toppings. You know those peanuts, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, so you had a good background. And then I want to talk a little bit about some sales hustle that you showed when you joined Beckman Coulter. I love this story. Tell us what was going on there and <laughs> And basically, how you landed that big deal?
1: My first two years, I was I was I was in the southeast in uh, in Alabama, and uh, and the company quote unquote promoted me. Uh, I say quote unquote because it was basically the same job. They gave me a a, a nicer title. And it was just to get me to come out to California because the company's uh, competitor, this company called Celldyne, was based in Sunnyvale. And so the company was having a hard time in, in Northern California. And I got here and I figured out why they were having a hard time. The competition had sewn up the distribu- the distributors. They were all, you know, very much committed to the competition. So it was tough going there the first few months. And I was fortunate to get a call about a customer who was up in Jackson, California, and she was dissatisfied with our machine, had decided to, to buy another machine, and had called in to Coulter to see if we had any program where we would donate these machines to developing countries or to universities or whatever. I got wind of this, and it just so happens I had taken in one of my competitor's machines in on trade. And I still had this machine in my closet. And so now I realize that this this woman up in Jackson has purchased my competitor's machine. And so I call, I, I call several times trying to get an appointment with her. And she basically, you know, through the office manager kept telling me, no thanks, we're, you know, we've made a decision. We're buying this other machine. If you want to come pick up the old one and send it somewhere, you know, feel free. And I was able to relay through the office manager that, hey, listen, ask her to spend an hour with me. And if after that time, she still wants the competitor's machine, she doesn't have to go buy one. I'll bring one with me. It'll be with me in the car and she can just have it for free. These are about $15,000 machines. And so if she doesn't think mine's better, she can save $15,000. And if she thinks mine's better then Anyway, so that worked. The machine that she had bought was going to arrive like the day after anyway i had to drive all night to get there in time to be able to demo the machine the day before she was supposed to have her in service and you know i'm 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 telling the story so you must know how it ends i was able to convince her to buy my machine and i leveraged that deal to sign uh, San Jose Medical, which turned out to be uh, you know my strongest distributor in California. So it was only one deal. It was only one machine, but it was really a turning point to being able to build a successful business in, uh, in Northern California. So it was a lot of fun. It's what I'm proud of.
0: Were you nervous that you were going to go through all this? And at the end of the day, she was going to say, no, nope, I want the competitor's machine. I had nothing
1: to lose. I had absolutely nothing to lose. And I feel like that's the way you have to go into it in in a deal. It's important to qualify. It's important to understand the risks, but it's also super important to believe in yourself and throw yourself into into a situation like it means everything. And uh, and that's that's I think when we when we find the best in ourselves.
0: There's a great lesson there, and having the confidence to show up, put it all on the line, and deal with the consequences. I love that story. All right, so. Then you're off to PTC. PTC is truly one of the great technology companies of our era. I'm gonna throw a I'm gonna throw a quote out here. I'd love you to elaborate on this quote. Take the rock out of your shoe.
1: <laughs> so that's Jim Drill. So Jim Drill was my boss's boss when I joined uh, PTC, and it was one of my first sort of team meetings. And and team meeting is a polite way to put it. Ass chewing would be another uh, equally uh, apt descriptor for what this was. But anyway, it was the beginning of, uh, you know, the beginning of the period. I don't know if it was the beginning of the month or beginning of the quarter. Jim gets the team in a room there in uh, in Mountain View and he talks about how somebody was running a race and they start to run this marathon and they've been training and about a, a couple of miles into it, they can feel something a little bit uncomfortable in their shoe. But heaven forbid, they should stop and check their shoe because they'll lose some ground in the race. And so they just kind of keep, keep running through it. And a few miles later, what was a, a light feeling is now, you know, definitely hurts a little bit. It's, it's kind of pinching. But again, they they run through it. They're they're going, you know, they're, they're too busy to stop and see what's going on in their shoe, and so they keep running. And uh, about halfway through the race, his foot is really throbbing. It really hurts, and it's it's becoming clear that it's a pebble. There's a pebble in the shoe, but couldn't possibly stop at this point. You know, we're in the middle of a race, so uh, so he keeps running. And you know, three quarters of the race now, the foot is getting squishy because because of the blood. Where the rock has broken through the skin and 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 so about mile twenty two or twenty three the to the top of the shoe is now red. so the foot is just completely full of blood and uh, and and the guy can barely run and so now is more like a fast walk and now runners are just like flying by and this guy's sort of limping along, leaving a little a little red mark on the sidewalk with every step. and all he really had to have done, early in the race is recognize there's a problem, stop, pull the shoe off, take the pebble out, put a shoe back on and keep running. And and Jim told that story to uh, tee up the importance of pipeline generation. And so you can go into a period and say, hey, I don't have time to create new pipeline. I've got these deals that I'm working and I'm going to spend all my time uh, working on these deals, and and I don't have time to sort of stop and take the rock out of my shoe. I'm too busy closing deals, and uh, and and if you don't, you'll you may not finish the race. And if you do, people are going to pass you. And so it was a it was a, it was a great story. I thought a great way to make the point about solving the important sort of fundamental problems first.
0: You got me on the floor already. I'm I'm feeling
1: the pain. I haven't even I haven't
0: even put my shoe on yet. So right. I will never look at uh, wearing my sneakers the same way again. In all due respect, though, PTC because of folks like Jim built a phenomenal culture. It's really known as a company that built sales leaders. What did they do uniquely that allowed them to produce so many great sales
1: executives? It's simple to describe, but hard to do. They figured out the profile of individuals who were likely to be successful and they were disciplined about only hiring people who met that profile they took enablement seriously and so they provided really really good they didn't even call it enablement they called it training back then they they provided really good training and they operated in an environment of transparency and accountability and that creates, you know, the necessary backdrop for meritocratic decision making. And so that's that's really what they did. They hired the best. They trained the hell out of them. They rewarded top performers with, with, with comp and with promotions. They didn't uh, waste too much time to exit people that they didn't think were going to be successful.
0: While you were out there, tell me a little bit about what you learned about recruiting, how to recruit effectively. And I'd love to also hear your perspective on DNA, nurture versus nature.
1: Sure. Recruiting is the most important thing a sales leader does. You can recruit well and be mediocre at everything else and still probably end up with a pretty good result. You know, back to the analogy of cutting horses you get on a good cutting horse, get out of its way. And conversely, if if you're a mediocre recruiter and and you're exceptional at everything else sort of mediocre results is is the best you can possibly achieve and so i think the key intangibles that you look for uh, as a sales leader are intelligence you need people who are who are smart who can learn the value prop understand your solution are both book smart and street smart meaning they've got IQ and EQ. They can read the room. They can read a situation. They can assess politics. I put all of that in the uh, in the intelligence category, and and people with high drive who uh, or grit is a term people use a lot, and you know grit is really that combination between a strong desire to achieve something, and that is more often code for fear of failure. More than uh, more than attachment to a goal, but a strong desire to achieve and a willingness to persevere through the obstacles uh, that they will uh, that they'll encounter along the way. That's sort of the second. And then the third is uh, is coachability a willingness to, uh, a humility, frankly, I think coachability and humility are very similar, Uh, a willingness to learn, to examine uh, what they're doing or examine their beliefs and evolve. And then the last one is just, you know, values, character. Are they honest? Is it someone that, that we can depend on? Those are really the intangibles. If you think about like how they interact with each other or how they relate to each other in terms of priority, the way I think about it is values are table stakes. You don't want to build a company and you don't want to work with people who don't share your values. So that's sort of table stakes. But once we put those to the side, I think of intelligence as a threshold. People have to be smart enough, smart enough to uh, to learn what they need to learn, to, to to do the things that we need them to do as a seller. The smarter, the better, but... The correlation between intelligence and results, in my experience, ends up being imperfect at best. And then coachability, I think of as, as somewhat range-bound. People who are not coachable, well, it takes them a long time to learn things, and uh, and and so they that may thwart their development. People who are too coachable, though, end up often getting pushed around by customers and they they don't really hold their own in that customer conversation so i'd say there's a there's a sweet spot range of coachability the thing that i find is most uh indicative of how successful someone will be is is grit how badly they want it how much they're willing to work through and persevere through the obstacles in order to achieve what they're what they're trying to achieve there's a great
0: article. It's it's one of the HBR classics about a study happened back in the 60s. A consulting firm said, we'll pick the, we'll pick the best salespeople. And it was with a car dealership, which I guess at the time was state of the art sales. Yeah. And so they went through, they surveyed all of these different applicants for a job, ended up picking a guy who had never sold before, let alone never sold cars. And they said, This is the guy that's going to crush it. And so the dealership went out on a limb. They hired him and sure, sure enough, he crushed it. And they came back, and they said, we never would have picked this guy. How did you know? And they said, because he was off the charts on two things. Number one, tenacity. He just had this incredible drive to never give up. And the second one they cited was empathy. He had an incredible ability to relate to the customer in an honest and a meaningful way. It's like, if you got that, we can teach you how to sell cars.
1: Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Mike Tyson has a quote that I like a lot. He says, um, he says the difference between winners and losers. Losers hate going to the gym. Winners hate going to the gym, but they learn to love it. They convince themselves. And, and I think in sales, you have to, you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to, to find the, the things that are hardest, the things that are most unpleasant and learn to find joy almost trick yourself into finding joy in doing those things because then if you do those things the hardest thing if you do it and do it well and do it a lot man you're all by yourself nobody else is yeah. doing that and and yeah. so that's that's going to be what what separates you know you from from others and i think pipeline generation, cold calling is, uh, is at the top of that list uh, in terms of hard and often unpleasant things that are incredibly impactful that uh, most salespeople give up on doing. All right. So while you were out there in the 80s
0: cheering on the dolphins, I was in San Francisco cheering on the San Francisco 49er dynasty. I'm going to throw out my favorite quote from Jerry Rice. I do the things today that no one else is willing to do so that tomorrow I can do the things no one else can do.
1: Love it. I love Same that. principle
0: though. Yeah, Same totally. Principle. Totally. That's Carlos De La Torre, Chief Revenue Officer at Trip Actions. When we come back, Carlos will share the three magic questions he always asks before signing on to a new company. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. Today I'm joined by Carlos De La Torre, Chief Revenue Officer at TripActions. As we've already learned, Carlos has an uncanny ability to simplify complex problems by zeroing in on the factors that really matter. It served him well as a rep and a frontline sales manager. As we're about to find out, it's also one of the keys to his success as a CRO. Let's get back to the conversation. So another thing, Carlos, that really fascinates me about your career, some people stake their claim in a particular industry, develop really deep domain expertise. I mean, you've run the table, CAD, PLM, IT service management, you've sold databases, travel. How do you move from one industry to another and build up the knowledge and expertise that you need as you transition?
1: Well, when I've entered a new sector, I've had to make the commitment to to learn it. Um, but I think that happens, that happens even if you're changing companies within sort of similar segment, maybe, maybe to a lesser degree, but my area of knowledge is in, is in sales and, and sales leadership. And, uh, and that I think translates, translates pretty well across segments. Now I have spent most of my career and I've been most successful when I've been involved with selling a a solution that is differentiated in ways that matter to the customer. And I've been doing it on behalf of a company that doesn't have brand recognition. And so I'd say the the thing I know a little more about is is how to disrupt a market. I'm sure there's a completely different you know, set of skills that you want and need, you know, for a very mature company that's maybe at the other end of its life cycle that's just trying to, you know, defend its position. Yeah, if you're trying to disrupt the market, whether it's an application or IT infrastructure or or InfoSec, I think many of the key principles are the same.
0: So what's the playbook for market disruption?
1: Similar to you know what I talked about with parametric technology, it's identify the key profile and that's going to be different for the various roles you're trying to recruit for and get really good at quickly identifying and, and qualifying individuals who fit that profile. As a leadership team, as hiring managers have to be really good at attracting them, at delivering uh, you know, delivering basically the, the, the pitch for why someone should invest or bet their career on, on this company, this leader at this time. And then I think leaders have to be really good at retaining their best people. And that has a lot to do with, you know, operating in a, in a, in a transparent and meritocratic way. It has to do with investing in, in their success, in their skills, in their growth. And so it all starts with people. And, and so I put all of that into the into the sort of the people or the recruiting bucket. Then as an organization as a as a team, you need to build really good enablement and you need to break down the key activities that lead to success and the key skills required in order to execute those activities really well you need to break them down and create a you know create an environment a mechanism to instill those skills and so that people can learn those activities and so for a quota carrying sales uh salesperson there's really three fundamental skills it's it's generating new pipeline it's building champions and it's qualifying deals And a lot goes into those three things, but you need to have enablement that gives people the foundation and then also develop leaders so that they can then reinforce that enablement, do the one-on-one coaching before meetings, after meetings. And then I'd say the third bucket, so that's sort of the development bucket. And then the third bucket is execution. Build programs to make sure that the team is doing the, the, the key things and build in mechanisms to identify under and over performance. When you identify over performance, really investigate and figure out what is it what is it that's driving this over performance? Is it a, an attribute in this individual? We want to go hire more people like them. Is it something that they're doing? Then we want to go codify that and replicate it across the, or across the rest of the team? Is it the accounts that they're focusing on or the role that they're focusing on? So when you see overperformance, really investigate it and, and, and figure out what's driving that overperformance. And then the same thing when you have underperformance, identify the root cause and address the root cause. If, you know, if it's knowledge or skill, then the root cause is usually training. Uh, sometimes it's structural. Sometimes the goals weren't weren't fair or the territory's not right. But it's really about creating an execution program that gives you consistency, repeatability, and is heavily based on the leading indicators of success so that you can replicate overperformance and remedy underperformance quickly. You don't have to wait till someone's been around, been on board for 12 or 18 months to realize there's a problem. You can get, you can get ahead of it. So those would be the three buckets. What are some of
0: the leading indicators that you and your management team focus on?
1: So a key uh, leading indicator that we look at is, uh, you know, what we call visible opportunities. So opportunities that enter into, you know, what we deem stage two, our scope stage, If an AE is driving a healthy flow of new visible opportunities, well, that tells us that that AE is building new pipeline effectively. They're good at PG. It tells us that they're good at messaging. They can engage with customers and convert them so that they're they're probably good at champion building because they're able to advance deals from the discovery stage to the scope stage. So that's a pretty key leading indicator. And so if the visible opportunities, and so visible opportunity or scope stage, that's typically... Uh, it's unlikely that a leader is not involved in the opportunity, and so there's sort of two people from the sales team that are involved in the opportunity, and they both agree. Yep, this is real. We've got a we've got a real one here. This thing is in scope stage. If the new VOs are not there, then we have to sort of go back and see. Okay, is it a is it a quantity problem or is it a quality problem? If it's a quantity problem then often it means maybe the the individual is not putting enough focus into pipeline generation or they don't know how to use the tools or you know whole host of things that could be impacting the quantity if it's a quality issue it's typically either either messaging or uh or or maybe they're you know they they're not as empathetic and so it's 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 a little bit harder for them to connect with prospects
0: yeah i've heard you mention pipe gen several times for many reps. That's the hardest part of the job. It's not fun. It's hard to get motivated. What position do you take on a rep's responsibility vis-a-vis pipe gen? And how do you motivate and inspire them to actually get the job done?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Not every sales organization asks AEs to do pipeline generation. There are plenty of plenty of teams out there where the generation of new pipeline the responsibility is on the SDRs and marketing. I don't subscribe to, to that uh, philosophy for a few reasons. I'll, maybe I can come to that in a moment. But, you know, I think, first of all, AEs need to understand the why. And the why uh, around pipeline generation, you know, the obvious reason is you have more pipeline. If marketing's creating pipeline, if SDRs are creating pipeline and AEs are also creating pipeline, well, great. You have one more uh, source of, of new opportunities, but there's more. The skills required to generate new pipeline, they have a, a large overlap with the skills required to advance a deal. When you think about a deal, when, when, when somebody gets stuck, when an AE gets stuck in a deal, typically it's because... They don't have a champion, or their champion isn't strong enough, they can't get high in the organization, or they need to cross over into another department. All of those problems are solved one of the ways to solve them is through pipeline generation. I, my champion will take me to the economic buyer. Great, I'm going to PG into the EB and, and get myself there. Or my champion is unable to get me into another department or over to uh, you know, someone else with a key role that I need, whose support I need in this deal. Great, I'll just get myself there. So PG skills really translate into deal prosecution. And therefore, AEs who are good at PG have higher close rates on their existing opportunities. Furthermore, there's a almost an emotional or a, a psychological phenomenon that occurs when AEs are not responsible for PG. They get finicky, like the Morris the cat, remember the commercial Morris the cat? Yep. He would sniff the, do- the cat food, it wasn't good enough. Nope, snip, nope, this one's not good enough. And I forget which cat food it was, it was like the only cat food that was good enough for Morris.
0: I think we're talking about nine lives there. Was it
1: nine lives? Yeah. Nine lives, yeah. Okay. It's a classic. So what ends up happening is AEs get the same get the same way. Well, that that MQL or that sorry, that opportunity isn't good enough, so send it back. The SDRs need to do more work and you, what what ends up happening is you get this tension between the AEs and the SDRs and between the AEs and marketing when the AEs have to suck it up and generate some of their own opportunities, it gives them a real appreciation for how hard it is and so uh, they treat those SDR sourced and marketing sourced opportunities with more care. They do more preparation. They and so their conversion on those opportunities is better too. And I think it really just creates a, a very healthy dynamic where. Everyone, and when I say everyone in this in this scenario in this uh, case, I, what I'm referring to is marketing, the SDR team, and the A team. Everyone is aligned around the goal of we want the biggest, healthiest pipeline that we can possibly have. And so there's 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 really a lot less tension and infighting when you when you have it oriented that way.
0: There's some deeper human psychology there around what it takes to bring a group of people together around a common goal. When everyone's got to work, work really hard at it, they just appreciate it better. I mean, I even think about as a kid, you know, most of the time my parents didn't hand me things. We were out in the front yard working together, pulling weeds. That bicycle represented two years of weed pulling, and I treated it differently. I think what I hear you saying is PipeGen is very similar. If you're there pulling the weeds, you appreciate that deal a lot more.
1: That's a great analogy. Yes, absolutely. You nailed it.
0: Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. So uh, you've clearly codified a, a, a great methodology that ranges from hiring to pipe gen. I'd love to maybe hear about one of the stumbles that you uh, took in your career and and what you learned from that?
1: Yeah, probably there was a period um, during my time at MongoDB where I failed to hire leaders quickly enough. What ended up happening is the business was growing quickly and, you know, it's like driving a car quick, fast. You drive a car fast, a small mistake can have significant consequences you know to the point of you can drive into a tree if you're driving slowly you have more time to correct and and so when a company is growing quickly the same is true things that appear to be a small or distant problem today can mushroom and become a giant problem Sooner than you think. Yeah, that happened to me with with recruiting of sales leaders, and uh, you know what ended up happening is I was slow to, uh, to 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 hire some some senior leaders, and as a result, I very quickly had too many reports, and therefore I wasn't giving the leaders under me a uh, enough support, so they got behind on recruiting, and uh, you know there was this cascade of of challenges that culminated in. We found ourselves going to into a fourth quarter where we were—I don't remember the exact number—but we were, you know, a uh, uh, double-digit number of AEs behind plan. Mm-hmm. We worked super hard and um, and did some big deals, and it took a truly a heroic sales effort that quarter, and we just made the number. And uh, it was it was bittersweet because the reality is we should have blown it out. And the reason we didn't blow it out is because we were behind on capacity. And so while the execution and the effort were amazing, we just didn't have the bodies on board, and that was my fault for not uh, for not having the leadership capacity six nine months prior in order to do the recruiting. And so that was a that was a painful lesson. You know, we were fine, we made the number, but I I didn't feel great about it because I knew that uh, I knew that I'd missed something there.
0: You just described a cycle that repeats itself again and again. I was, prior to this call, catching up with John McMahon. I know he's a, a mentor of yours as well. John has the opportunity to talk to a lot of different companies. And he said, what what usually happens, Justin, if the companies aren't forward thinking, CEO commits to a number, hands it to the CRO, and it's November, and says, all right, this is your number for next year. What the CEO and the CRO failed to take into account is ramp time is six months, for reps. Getting new managers on board is nine months. But now you're into the new year and you have no- nobody on board. You've essentially lost an entire half a year of productivity because you haven't been ahead of it. So to your point, you got to be nine months out on your managers, six months out on your reps so that when you do hit that new year, you got the full capacity you need to deliver the number.
1: Yep, yeah, no, no question. It's uh, it's funny you mentioned John. You know, he taught me how to build productivity models that enable you to to see where you need to be by when in order to hit the goals, assuming whatever productivity you think you're going to get and and whatever the ramp times uh, that you've seen in the past. So, yeah, I, I agree. It's it's super important, and and companies often get it wrong. Yeah. Let me, let me quote,
0: close on this topic. You have selected some phenomenal companies to work at. You mentioned MongoDB or TripActions now. What is your formula for picking a winner?
1: Similar to, uh, to what I said about uh, PTC's formula earlier, it's relatively straightforward to describe, but, but hard to do and, and hard to find. Really three ingredients. It's market, product, and execution. So market. I look for a company that plays in a market that is already big where customers are dissatisfied with the legacy solutions one of the things that can really you know thwart a company's growth is if they run out of market and frankly that's what happened to parametric technology it was a great company great product great execution but it but CAD cam was a two billion dollar market the company you know reached 1.1 billion in sales in about 10 years and uh, and then sort of plateaued because how do you keep growing 50 percent a year when you're already 55 percent of the market and so the first one is you don't want to be an evangelist you don't want to have to go out and convince customers first that they have a problem and then that you have the best solution to that problem, you want to go into a market where the problem is well understood and major then many customers are dissatisfied with the way that the uh, that the current that the incumbents are sol- solving the problem. That's the first. The second is 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 the product. You want to be selling a solution that is truly differentiated and that that, differentiated, that differentiation is valuable. To customers, and that that differentiation is down at the architecture level. It's not just a feature that some other company can copy or even improve upon, and therefore you know leapfrog you in six months. Architecture is really hard to fix, and so you want to be in a company where you've got a differentiated, valuable product that's that that's uh, that's got a significant lead on every other uh, product in the market. If you have those two things you want to go to a company where there's solid execution, where you know that um, the people around the table are not going to squander the market opportunity that this great solution uh, presents itself. So those are really the the three ingredients. And uh, if, if those three ingredients are there, I'd say, you know, my advice to, uh, you know, to, to, to someone looking at their sales career is then Find the best company that you can and then go work for the best boss that you can so that you get the, you get the mentorship, you get the coaching. And, you know, a common mistake people make is to optimize for the title or the comp or the territory or something else besides op- optimizing for the opportunity. And I think the opportunity is really uh, a factor of the company and the boss.
0: You know, as you were going through that list of criteria, the market, the product, the solid execution and people, I was just thinking about TripActions and and checking those boxes. Travel industry, massive, ripe for disruption. I'm a proud user of of, uh, TripActions as well. And and clearly, you guys have nailed the product experience. I wanted to talk a little bit, though, about the execution. You guys hit this massive brick wall when COVID descended upon us. And I love the story of how you guys responded. Far from counting yourself out, you guys came back charging. What did you guys do as a leadership team to respond?
1: Yeah, uh, thank you for for asking that question. You know, I I wouldn't call it a, a, a brick a brick wall as much as a a cloud of thick smoke where we didn't <laughs> really, you know, I have to say, right when right when uh you know COVID broke and and the lockdown happened, um, we didn't quite uh, have it figured out particularly March were really challenging uh times for us when there was so much uncertainty you know I'm proud of how the company and the team responded you know whenever you have a major disruption I think I think there's there's an opportunity and and you typically or you often see the players in a market the the pecking order you often see it change and re reoriented or reorganized during a, uh, during a crisis or a market disruption. And so, you know, what happened here, we accelerated development of a second product that was already under, under development and expense and payment, uh, expense management and payment solution that essentially eliminates expense reports. So people don't have to create them. People in the back office don't have to review them. They don't have to reconcile. The whole expense management process gets fully automated down to, you know, down to uh, just looking at a screen. So we accelerated that. We built features that are particularly valuable to customers in a COVID and a post COVID, you know, world. For instance, the ability to, you know within the trip actions platform ingest you know health information from the world health organization and other entities so that companies can make educated decisions about travel policies that take into consideration the risk in various regions and you know various other capabilities more enhanced meeting and events planning capabilities, because, you know, as companies go to maybe more remote work, well, bringing people together for meetings is going to be more important and a bigger part of, you know, the 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 travel uh, problem, if you will. And so from a product perspective, the company executed really, really well in maturing the product in exactly the ways that companies, that customers need, uh, you know, need in, in a post-COVID world. On the sales side, I think we you know, we figured out how to talk about travel in the midst of a pandemic. And, you know, it turns out that it's actually a pretty good time to revisit how you're managing travel cuz it was always a big deal but post covid you have the potential for you know maybe economic challenges for some companies maybe even a a recession you have health risks so managing travel and managing the costs associated with travel is more challenging in the future than it was in the past and we already had a great solution and so optimizing or migrating to a new solution during a time when you don't have your road warriors, you know, out there on on the road visiting customers and, and therefore you won't disrupt them. Well, that kind of makes sense. And doing it when you have the bandwidth, uh, the folks in the travel and the finance team don't have a lot going on in the way of travel right now. They have the bandwidth. And so it turns out it's a really good time to take a closer look at, at, at the travel program. And so we've been able to post uh, some really good results five of our eight best months in history were during covid we tripled the number of global 500 customers we signed up more new business in in 2020 than we did in 2019 with with fewer uh fewer people on board so i think the company uh the company really executed and i think we're i think we're well poised uh for this next phase as as travel uh, as travel resumes
0: i go back to that story you told about jim drill and taking the the rock out of your shoe you guys had the foresight to deal with a rock and i think in the grand scheme of things it'll be a small rock because there there will be a massive shift in the way that we do business and relatively speaking you know the the instinct you guys had to deal with it up front and change your trajectory i think will make all the difference so great great story in terms of foresight and just how to deal with with challenges all right we got one question left You've got a lot to think about in your life as you look back across the arc of those experiences. If you could nail it down to one thing, what's the thing that's made the biggest difference in your life?
1: Feel the fear and do it anyway. So being able to fear and doubt, being able to compartmentalize that and act as though it didn't exist and therefore believe in myself or believe in my team, even when uh, victory was far from certain.
0: I see the guy that was willing to drive up to Jackson with a competitor's machine, walk into the door and say, my stuff is better. Let's take care of this. That's great. Carlos, it's been an awesome conversation. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Justin. I enjoyed it. Appreciate you having me on.
0: Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.